0: Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarization of our communities, and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? my guest today is Jim Grover, a social documentary photographer who deep dives respectfully into the hearts and minds of people in his local communities. Living in South Clapham, London, he is rewarded with a rich tapestry of life. His work celebrates 75 years of Windrush stories and Caribbean culture, 25 years of the ordination of women into the Church of England priesthood. He has captured COVID stories from a single park bench during the global crisis And celebrated the life of Morris Dorfman, who ran the longest surviving independent shop on Clapham High Street. Morris was the grandchild of Ukrainian refugees who arrived in 1902, fleeing anti-Semitic violence in what was then part of Russia. And this is what Jim does. He looks behind shop facades into West Indian dominoes clubs and Jamaican front rooms. He attends gravesides and community meetings. Like his first major project entitled Of Things Not Seen, Jim looks behind all of those walls that can stop us from seeing our shared human experience and from connecting. His work is described as poignant, intimate, moving and often beautiful. And The Times, The Observer, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, Time Out, The BBC, The British Journal of Photography – are all a part of the British media and more that respects his work in return. Hello, Jim, and welcome.
1: Thank you very much, it's great to join you.
0: Uh, I really appreciate your time. Um, As as we were just saying, this is an exceptionally busy exhibition period for you. So thank you again, Jim.
1: Pleasure, absolute pleasure.
0: I wondered if first up for the listeners, If you could actually describe yourself, are you a born and bred lad from Clapham?
1: (laughs) Uh, No, I was born in Amersham. Uh, My dad was in the army. So my early life was spent uh, in places like Germany, Malta, Cyprus. Uh, And then he returned to the UK uh, in 66 uh, and sadly died the following year of a heart attack. Uh, And I then went to school in Berkshire, University in Oxford, and then I came down to London. So I kind of regard myself as a Londoner, uh, first and foremost, although I've just discovered actually that I have Welsh blood in me, uh, which I'm about to explore further. We may come on to that later. Uh, But no, I regard myself as a Londoner. I've lived in Clapham, South London for 30 years. I love being here. It's just so vibrant, so diverse. There's so many stories to be told. Uh, And so that's how I think about myself.
0: And that's exactly what I wanted to pick up on, because you do live in a happily diverse uh, part of London. Um, It's interesting that when you're a photographer, uh, there's an impact, isn't there, in terms of how you are seeing, how you are seeing the perception of you. That's why I was interested in your own description, because, of course, you're entering various diverse cultural communities So I wondered how you negotiated your entry into those communities, because critically, you're asking to gain trust, aren't you?
1: Absolutely. Um, And the work I do is is essentially a partnership. You just cannot do the sort of work I do, whether I'm documenting women priests, whether I'm telling the story of Maurice Dorfman or the Caribbean community. You, You cannot do it. Unless it's a relationship of some sorts, um, and it's quite interesting. As I stand back and think about so, how did this you know relationship with the Caribbean community start for me? And actually, it's, it's a wonderful story. So I took my very first photograph of the Caribbean community here in Clapham six years ago, almost the day. And how it came about was, I was chatting at the end of uh, our Sunday church service to a lovely guy called Trevor. uh, And Trevor came over from Jamaica in 61. And he said, uh, would I like to come and visit his Dominoes Club in the heart of Clapham? Uh, And I had no idea that there was a Dominoes Club, you know, in Clapham. And so of course I said, yes, please, because as a storyteller what I'm always looking for is stories. You know that that that's if you like what I need to you know find is things to tell a story about. And I thought to myself, gosh, I have not heard about this Domino's club in Clapham. I don't think most people are aware of it. There sounds like there could be something of interest here. So I started out by entering this this Domino's club just off the high street uh, on June the 1st, uh, 2017. And I went there with no more expectation than just to kind of experience this amazing thing, dominoes, uh, amongst the mostly men elders. Um, and I was kind of captivated by this beautiful scene of of maybe 30, 40 men sitting around tables of four, a bit like bridge, uh, just happily enjoying each other's company playing dominoes. And occasionally there would be shrieks of emotion as someone would bang the table, and then it would go all quiet again. There was a bar serving drinks. Uh, and it was a very beautiful scene, actually. So, anyway, so I spent a lot of time at Dominoes Club. And then I discovered, because I was new to this community, I was literally discovering this community for the first time, I discovered that Dominoes is just one part of a very distinctive set of traditions and culture. That the first generation of migrants bought here between kind of 1948 and 71, and so what I thought was going to be a story about dominoes evolved into me spending a year uh, in people's homes, in clubs, in churches, at funerals, at rituals, the Dominoes Club, and, th- and that that became, if you like, my my first serious piece of work with this community and it was exhibited in 2018 uh for then the 70th anniversary and it was in the oxo gallery and we had an amazing we had thirteen thousand people came in 17 days and and the best thing for me was that little over half of those were the caribbean community and i was just so thrilled that they were coming to see their story. And I, I would say to them, you should feel so proud to you. This is your story. It's not my story. This is your story I'm telling. Um, and so that was kind of my first immersion. And then... I knew I wanted to do something for the 75th because I've got so many friendships now and relationships. And so that then led to this second body of work, which opened last week, which I'm sure we'll come to in a second. Um, but, but going back to your, your point, yes, this is all about trust. You know, my, my, my experience as a documentary photographer is that if the individuals that you want to sort of get to know, portray, shine the light on, if they think what you're doing is important, and, and if you like, worthy, and they trust you, and that does take time, you know, gaining trust, of course it does, because I'm going into some very intimate moments here, uh, then it's extraordinary, you know, what's possible. And, you know, this, this this new body of work, you know, has basically come about because I've been invited into people's lives because they knew what I did before. Um, a little, little anecdote, and if I'm going on too long, just interrupt me, but a little anecdote so one of the things I discovered in this new work is there's there's some real you know uh, initiatives underway to kind of put new energy back into the game of dominoes you know dominoes is typically played by men and often by the elders because uh, obviously they brought it with them from the Caribbean when they first came here you know kind of 70 50 70 years ago um, and I discovered that there's a uh, there's an initiative an outreach initiative by Lambeth Libraries with the Brixton Immortals Dominoes Club, and they're taking their their tables into a Lambeth library once a month to introduce the game to youngsters, kids. Uh, And so I thought that would make a great story for my new work, which we'll talk about later. So I went along, and uh, at first there was a bit of nervousness. I understood that entirely by the domino's club about me photographing children and i completely understand that and always respect it i said look why don't i just wait here i'll I'll do no photography until i can talk to a parent or a guardian of one of the children who come just to make sure they're happy and if they're happy then obviously i can go ahead and if they're not i respect that and i'll put my camera away and this um this this uh lady um suddenly appeared with her son jeremiah and i said what i was doing i said would it be possible for me to photographed Jeremiah, you know, Learning Dominoes. And she said, oh, you, you're the guy who has photographed our community and you've presented it in the and Library, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She said, you can do anything you like. I so love what you're doing for our community. You have complete free reign. You haven't got to ask me. Just enjoy yourself. Uh, and, you know, that's what I've discovered. People now mm. know of me and they, they trust me.
0: That's an incredible position to be in, isn't it? And uh, it's interesting that, of course, you can say it's effectively by – invitation and perhaps actually before we um continue to talk more about um particularly the Windrush work we should contextualize for listeners that may uh particularly other international listeners who may not be familiar with what's become the Windrush scandal unfortunately um but perhaps you'd just like to contextualize why you even have a Caribbean community in South London
1: yeah I'd be delighted um so back in 1948, um, a ship called uh, HMT Empire Windrush uh, docked in Tilbury, and it had on board around 800 802 Caribbean passengers who were coming from primarily Jamaica, but actually all across the Caribbean. Uh, and the government was suddenly, you know, uh, challenged with you know a need to accommodate these people, uh, and. Some of them ended up. 236 of them ended up being housed in the uh, underground wartime shelter by the Clapham South Tube Station, uh, and so if you like, you know, Clapham became like the first place. That this this migrant sort of group uh, lived in, and they signed on up their own in the Brixton Labour Exchange, and they got married in Brixton, the registry office. Uh, and so, you know, it's like one of those things. I think when the, a first group puts down its roots, if you like, somewhere, then of course that's where everyone then follows, you know, them too, because they know there's a community there that they can become. Part of in, in what for them initially is is a foreign land. Um, some, some, by the way, came earlier uh, in the war. They served what was called the mother country, uh, signing up to uh, join the British forces at the end of the Second World War, did in the RAF. But they but they typically came between 1948 and 1971, and that group, which is about a half a million, is typically called the Windrush generation, uh, and they were absolutely fundamental invaluable in, you know, rebuilding this country, you know, after the war. They made an immense contribution to, you know, the, the NHS, particularly as nurses and porters, to the railways, the underground, the buses in factories as carpenters. They were absolutely Invaluable. They made this incredible contribution. Um, uh, and so if you like, you know, there's, there's a very large group here in, um, in Clapham, Brixton, very large, diverse uh, community of which Caribbeans are a big part of it, particularly Jamaican. So if you, if you wander along the streets in a summer evening, you'll find people playing dominoes on the pavement or Ludi, which is their version of Ludo. The Caribbean takeaways are absolutely packed with people waiting their turn for curry goat. Um, so it really is, if you like, a Caribbean community that I, I live in, and I, I love that, uh, and that's how it came about. What's interesting uh, for the for the for this new piece of work, which which I guess we'll come on to, is that just summarise a headline for a second. You know, the, the Caribbean heritage population in this country, including those with mixed heritage, is currently one point one million. That's the last census, twenty twenty one, England and Wales. Of those, around seventy thousand. Are the surviving Windrush generation, because of course they're, they're now in their eighties, 70s, 80s, 90s, which means there are one million, if you like, of the second, third, fourth, and now even the fifth generation that have followed that first kind of Windrush generation. And, that, and that's my interest in this new exhibition, which we can come on to later.
0: Yeah, thank you for contextualising because, of course, what's really important, uh, particularly for listeners who may be new to this uh, history, is the first generation were responding to an invitation from, as you say, the mother country. Britain was calling for people uh, to come and assist with rebuilding post-war Britain and of course in your exhibition your current exhibition uh, Windrush A Voyage Through Generations you're then of course also responding to pride and humility or um, courage um, in the face of the odds being against you because of course The first generation also experienced a very different story on arrival. Unfortunately, discrimination, not for everybody, but there was deep-rooted discrimination in people's experiences. So what stands out to me in in your work are the amazing accounts of how this community rebuilt their lives, their families, their futures against all the odds I wondered, Jim, uh, Jim, if, if anything really, really stood out to you, particularly from the first generation, perhaps people like Alfred Gardner or Mary Louise Smith, for example, who really saw that transition from invitation to actually becoming a victim in hostile legislation.
1: Yes, very interesting. Um, when I did my first body of work back in twenty eighteen, that was when I spent you know a large amount of time with the first generation, you know those people, you know now in their seventies, eighties, nineties, you know. And I was as a documentarist, I'm always both interviewing as well as photographing because I think the combination of imagery and and narration can really add up to you know one plus one equals three suddenly. Um, and uh, I was quite interested in the first exhibition. Uh, I decided to put the interview transcripts that I'd recorded uh, out for people to read. And I was just amazed by how many people would sit down and they'd read all 12. They might have spent two hours. I mean, people were just so interested in these stories. Um, and so when I was doing that first sort of generation exploration, I was really interested to hear more about, you know, how tough it was when they got here. Um, and you know, as you say, it was very tough. You know, kind of there was real racism, and you know, getting accommodation was difficult, and they experienced racism in the workplace, in finding homes. But it was interesting for me as I, as I as I explored that with them. And maybe it's because it's a long time ago now. They they'll touch on it. They'll mention it in passing, as it were. But actually, they they more want to talk about how happy they are. They made the if you like the journey, and they put down their roots here. They have so much you know to be thankful for that they've kind of sort of put that behind them. And even when I tease tease it out, you know, for example, this a lovely lady called Monica, uh, and she was married to a man called Sonny. He worked British Rail all his life, amazing man, lovely man. And uh say so he's my past, and I asked Monica about you know, how was it for Sonny when he was here first, because oh, he came just a little bit before her. And I asked you know about this whole thing about racism, and she said, "Look, you know, occasionally he'd have trouble, and you know, he might get you know, might sort of be threatened on the Clapham Common. But you know, he, he was a strong guy, and he'd fight back. And and you know, he he earned the respect of people because they knew if they if they took him on, he'd he'd, he'd fight back. And he was a big, strong Jamaican. Um, another great example, Alfred Gardner. You know, who is this?" A legend. So right now, they think there are only two surviving adult passengers from that 1948 Windrush voyage. You know who can say I was actually on the Windrush? Alfred's one of them, and he was asked recently, Alfred. You know, it was a 28 pound fare. You know, to come from Jamaica, London, which was a lot of money in those days. You know, you know, uh, you know, what was it worth it? And Alfred's response was, "It was worth every every penny." um and so and and that that is the sentiment that i kept discovering you know it was more they were looking at the positives their new lives their families here you know what they built for themselves the homes they own as opposed to focusing on you know how difficult it was at first and of course it was but but perhaps whether it's just you know kind of you know, as you get into your your know, your elder years, you you don't you don't dwell on that past so much. You dwell on the things that you feel positive and good about. Um, so so just to, you know, to summarize, I, I I found less you know conversation around that than I'd expected with all those people I spoke to.
0: Yeah, that is surprising because, of course, um, unfortunately, it has become you know very much a scandal. But I think um, there is a very clear dilemma. So, for example, people like Alfred will be able to talk about uh, the positives or things he has recognised as um, beneficial um, in his lifetime. Uh, and, of course, there are people deeply affected by um, unfair and unlawful deportations. But what stands out to me in your work is generosity and courage of the community, definitely generosity of spirit, you know, to keep going in the face of adversity. And one of the photos, um, you may like to um, describe it um, for the listeners, it's the twin sisters, their fourth generation, Karen and Christina. Yep, And... As you were saying, you, you include um, interviews and it was really interesting to read. And I'll quote her because she was talking about the arrival of her family, first generation family. They had so much courage, which we as a generation haven't even touched the surfaces of. It's so shocking what they had to go through and their level of resilience is absolutely phenomenal. So I wondered if you could maybe talk describe the photo for the listeners and perhaps um, tell us a bit more about what you felt um, came out of that particular visual storytelling.
1: Yeah, pleasure. Uh, so one of the things I've included in this new work is 12, if you like, pen portraits, which comprise a, a formal portrait as well as you know kind of uh, a, a story you know sort of the narrative that i sort of uh, learned from talking with them about their lives and my my particular interest was you know kind of to what extent are you holding on to those traditions and that distinctive culture that your your first generation you know brought here in this case um, in this case their uh, uh their grandmothers and um what I found uh, most interesting. So it was a fantastic story. So you know, these are 36-year-old twin sisters. Uh, they're actually fourth generation. Uh, they both work in the NHS, which is what a lot of the first first generation did if they were women, as nurses. They're young mothers. They've both got very young families, and I was really wanting to explore you know, they're fourth generation, how much are they holding on to the traditions and culture? And, and in particular, how are they thinking about the choices they want to make about passing that culture and traditions on to their own children? Um, Because it is a choice. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not judgmental here at all. Like for me, I'm just interested to know and learn about how people are you know, behaving differently when it comes to holding on to their past and passing it forward to their next generations. And what I found m- most interesting um, um, on this interview was a couple of things. Firstly, Christina is married to a man with Jamaican heritage, so for them, it's basically you know b- both of them have got deep, deep roots in sort of Jamaican heritage and culture. And uh, Christina was saying, you know, uh, I, I cook Jamaican food maybe four times a week in our home. Uh, absolutely, we've got an allotment just like the Jamaicans. And if you come to our allotment in the summer, it'll feel like you're in the in the sort of Jamaican country. Um, and Karen is married to a Ghanaian, so mixed heritage, uh, and you know hasn't got quite the same sort of you know so therefore there's quite the same strength of roots as a couple that uh, her sister has and as i was you know talking with them and interviewing them karen suddenly sort of said this this conversation is really interesting you know i need to do more i i i as i as i think about you know what i'm doing to hold on to my my heritage and culture i need to do more she used language along the lines of you know i don't want my caribbean culture to fizz out and i don't want my girlies this is her two uh two daughters to grow up, you know, in any way questioning their Jamaican heritage and roots, and I'm not doing enough. I want to do more, and I think one of the things that the conversations I often have, you know, provoke is is thought, because obviously they're living their lives like I am. You know, until I come along as an as an outsider and ask them questions about, you know, how do you think? How often do you eat Jamaican food, and why do you do that? And how do you think about bringing up your children, both, you know, as you know, born here. Uh and you know, you're now fourth generation, so they're fifth, uh, and therefore, you know, kind of growing up, you know, in a culture that they are surrounded by, but also want to, as a choice, if you so choose, to hold on to some of the things that your, you know, your family, you know, brought, if you like, you know, back back in the 50s and 70s. Um and so it was a really interesting conversation and both of them actually independently came afterwards and said, you know, for me, it was an incredible, we had a one and a half hour, amazing, inspiring Zoom conversation. Absolutely blew my mind. And they both came back and said it was really helpful. Uh, and I hadn't expected that because it just opened up some space that, you know, that they are living their lives implicitly. And I'm, I'm asking them some explicit questions about some things that I'm intrigued by and it causes them then for them to reflect and that's an ambition i have actually in the exhibition around how i want visitors to respond to it but anyway so so they were fantastic one of the most inspiring 90 minutes i've spent interviewing people i can ever recall it was just it was just completely amazing and there's there's the full interview as you've seen you know in in the book uh which i think is an incredible interview
0: yeah, no, it, it's 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 fantastic. The the accompanying book to the current exhibition, again for the listeners, Windrush, a voyage through generations. Uh it's so rich with such important authentic memory and storytelling. Um and so I wondered whether you ever felt particularly compromised, it goes back to ethics again, really, because sometimes perhaps you feel you're having to cross certain boundaries in order to get to those authentic stories. You're very much in the business of respectful guardianship and you're um, protecting heritage in many ways, uh, including memory. But, for example, it might be um, when you attend... Gravesides. There's the photograph um, where there's uh, rum being poured into a grave, a, a Jamaican tradition. Perhaps you'd like to talk about that example. Um, and from the point of view of how you manage that without feeling you're crossing boundaries in an unwelcome way, because I understand you also use a short lens. So you don't really have the comfort of
1: distance, Absolutely right. So yes, I, I do not use zoom lenses. I want, I want people to know I'm there, and so if they don't want me there, they can ask me to leave. Uh, I don't want to be kind of you know sort of, if you like sort of spying in with a long zoom lens. Um, so yes, this this graveside story. Uh, it's a great example actually. So it's very poignant. This story. It's one of nine stories in this new exhibition. Back in 2018. I exhibited as part of the first story uh, a beautiful woman called Diane burying her mother, Floris. Floris came over in the mid fifties from Jamaica. She was a nurse, had two children, and uh, she eventually passed and uh, I got to know her, Floris and Diana had sort of invited me into her home to interview Floris and photograph her. And when she died, I asked Diane, you know, could I photograph the funeral? Because I the Jamaican funerals are very distinctive in in how they are, how they play out, if you like. They're very different from funerals I I would experience. And she said, Of course. Uh and so I attended my what was actually then my first ever Jamaican funeral. So I had no idea what to expect. You know, one of the interesting things in my work is, you know, I'll step into a space the first time, even dominoes, and I have no idea what I'm gonna see. And therefore, you know things will happen which i'll miss as a photographer but obviously as, as you start to learn what is going to happen you can plan for it more thoughtfully in subsequent kind of opportunities anyway so uh i go along to this funeral and uh diane starts to pour rum into the uh grave and i've no idea it's going to happen i didn't know it was a tradition it's called the last tot you basically give your you a part of the last drink. Um, and uh, so I I photographed that and it was part of the exhibition and it was beautiful and Diana was, Diana was really pleased. Very interesting experience. Back to the thing about ethics, one of the features of uh, Caribbean funerals is typically they will open the coffin in the church so that mourners can come and play their, pay their last respects before the coffin is closed. And I hadn't known that was hadn't known that was going to come, and I felt very uncomfortable photographing uh, Floris in her open coffin. Even though the Jamaican community were going up with their mobile phones, and you know for them it was completely natural. For me, I felt quite hesitant. So actually, I stood quite a long way back and photographed the way so you just get a hint of what was in the coffin, but you didn't you know full, see the full detail. And um, Diane initially said, "Yeah, no, Jim, you're fine to use that. Absolutely fine." Because I, you know, I always get, I always once I've, once I get close to finalising the exhibition, the book, I then go back to people and say, "Are you okay with me to use this image?" Because uh, I never want to publish anything that someone's uncomfortable with. And Diane said, "No, it's fine. Absolutely fine." And actually, I was really uncomfortable with it. I just thought, "I'm not sure I'm happy with this." I know it's an important part of the, of the ritual, and as a documentarist, I ought to be making sure that's part of the, the story. And actually, on the very Final day before I put the uh, book to bed, I was at Heathrow Airport, and I called Diana one more time. I said, "Diana, are you really sure about this? I'm I'm a bit uncomfortable, but if you're, if you, know, if, you if you if you wanted in, then I would want to go ahead because it's your wish." I said very interesting, Jim. We talked last night as a family and thought it wasn't probably the right thing to include, and so just luckily I'd called her. Otherwise, it would have been too late for being gone to press. It would have booked, gone to bed, and it would be in the public domain. Um, so I am very kind of respectful of that. But then back to this story, then, then, what, then what happens? And this is so kind of moving and poignant. So, so Diane uh, uh, basically then becomes a grandmother for the first time to Sawaya, who's baptized in our church very happy day and uh, i was asked to photograph that you know obviously i'm, I'm often now asked to photograph you know family events because people know that you know i'm, I'm I, I can do that i love doing it and i give them the images and it makes me very happy and i don't you know i don't charge them for that because it's just a relationship a friendship i have anyway so so i was baptized and diana because she really wants to diana, she really wants to take the family to jamaica she takes them to jamaica And she comes back and tragically, at the age of 52, she has a brain hemorrhage and she passes away, she dies. And I visit visit her in hospital with our priest uh, and it's it's awful. And uh, when I had recorded Diane telling the story about her burying her mother uh, back in uh, 2018, she'd said, you know, "I, I really hope that when I go, you know, I'll have... The traditional jamaican funeral because that's what i want and that's what i want my children to do so that resulted in jayanne then aged 19 and her elder brother you know taking on the responsibility to bury their mother diane with the traditional jamaican funeral including you know pouring and that's what the image shows you know the family pouring rum into you know now diane's grave you know just literally three years after you know that's just absolutely tragic
0: And it's absolutely tragic, and it's such a poignant moment, but it's so interesting how you're contextualising because you can see that much of this is because you're so genuinely embedded. It's interesting, you know, oh, Jim, come and take some photos of us, you know, at this family event, and you'll do that free as a friend. So there's greater trust and authenticity in your relationship. So to be invited into such a space as that, um, it it, it speaks volumes. and it's so lovely at the same time that image, because in many ways it's joyous, isn't it? It's celebrating that um Jamaican culture. You know, what a great send-off. Here's some rum.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's bad point. Look, I, I regard it as a total privilege for me to be invited into the lives of so many that I have. You know, been invited into. It's absolutely incredible. And, you know, I'm I'm quite often quite conspicuous. You know, I'm, I'm the only kind of, sometimes my my wife comes and she, she'll hear people saying, who's the white guy? Uh, you know, because obviously I, I stand out, I'm conspicuous. You know, I'm, I'm now in typically, you know, moments and meeting sometimes 200 people and I might be the only, you know, sort of person who's not part of that community and so i do stand out but of course what everyone knows is i've been invited you know because everyone just assumed the fact i can go right next to the grave you know and you know and right next to people you know putting flowers on the grave and you know the one of the traditions in jamaican burials is that the family bury you know, you know, bury their departed. The, the grave diggers don't fill the grave. It's the responsibility of the family. So they all take a turn of the spade and it's really hard physical work to do when it's wet. Uh, and, you know, they they just, they 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 allow me right into the space. And that's that's an immense privilege. I never, I never, you know, take it for granted. I'm always very respectful. There are some things I, you know, I won't do. Uh, someone thought I, you know, I photographed actually Floris, this beautiful woman, uh, receiving communion from our priest in her bed, and and some thought he was giving her the last rites because she had her eyes shut and he was blessing her. I would never take a photograph of someone having their last rites. It just would seem to be completely intrusive and inappropriate. It's a private moment, um, so one has to be one has to be very mindful. But there is also this challenge around, you know, you know, as a documentarist your job is to document what you see however you may feel about this you know it's one of the challenges for you know conflict photographers you know to what extent you know do they do they put their camera down and help someone who needs help as opposed to do their job which is to document it so and obviously i'm, I'm doing nothing like that i have huge admiration for those who do that sort of work i could it's amazing but there is that element of you know always you know deciding when is it inappropriate just to you know, and just put the camera down and just be respectful and let them play out, even though you know it would make a fantastic photo.
0: Yeah, I think um, photographers are in many ways deciding their own ethical frameworks as they go along. There are principles that exist, but it's very much also declaring, if you like, what your own position is. And it, it makes me wonder, Jim, um, if you removed the camera lens would you have the same courage and healthy curiosity to go into these communities?
1: Yeah, I, I love, I love getting to know more about people and their lives. drives me drives me bonkers when I say, "Okay, oh, tell me about your story," and I'll, I'll and go on, and say more, say more. I'm just curious. I'm just genuinely curious. Sometimes people ask me, "Jim, are you a, are you a curator? Are you a storyteller?" Are you a photographer? What really are you? And I'm actually a bit of all of those things. You know, I I, I I'm fascinated by you know traditions. I'm fascinated by kind of unsung heroes, everyday lives. Um, little little another little, little story. So you may see on the website. There's a there's a cafe in the high street called Cafe Delight, and I I sort of first got to know it when I was doing a story on Capham High Street. And uh, turned out that um, uh, the cafe had been going for for 21 years, and I thought that's an amazing achievement to you know survive as a cafe on the high street. It's a traditional kind of builder's cafe, you know, sort of eggs and bacon for breakfast, uh, jacket potatoes, all that good stuff. And um, so I said, okay, let, let's. I got to know the owner as well. They're a Tur- lovely Turkish couple, uh, and they've been running the business since since Izzy was 16 when his dad died, and he took it on. And uh, so Izzy and Metapa, the husband and wife team. And so I said, let's let's do something in this cafe. I know what we'll do. I'll come in and spend a few days and I'll just I'll just photograph everyday life and we'll have a wall also of the portraits of all the regulars who've been coming for you know 10, 20 years or whatever. Um and so we did that and it was lovely. And uh the BBC news team got to know about it sort of word spreads and these sorts of things. And they said, could they come along? Uh, and they spent a whole day with the BBC News crew, you know, interviewing, talking to the, the, the regulars. And that night they broadcast it on the London News, about 10 minutes of it. And the regulars were, obviously, they were so proud and chuffed, you know, you know, you know these they had no idea they were about to be kind of celebrated on, you know, on the evening news at 6.30. Uh, and they would never have expected that, you know, and it was I just love it that when, you know, basically you know, people leading their everyday lives, I can find a way to celebrate in one way or another who they are. In this case, I'm celebrating the fact they are regulars to Izzy's cafe and they have been coming for years. And that's kind of how Izzy has kind of, you know, built his business over the years. And I can now basically have you on primetime TV, you know, being, being, being made a hero. I love that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's it is very much uh, you're raising uh, people's uh, stories and and their identities, their histories, their heritage, and. You talk about having, uh, I'll use your words, a genuine curiosity in order to do that. And I was interested in what you mean by genuine. Are you making a distinction from, you know, nosiness, curiosity killed the cat, intrusiveness? Is genuine pointing to the purpose behind your curiosity?
1: Yeah, I I really am interested um, uh, in people. I, I, I have a view... Which keeps being proven out for me that I mean everyone has got a story to be told everyone has you have I have um and sometimes those stories are deeply moving highly inspirational uh very profound and important uh and if, if you know one of my roles I see myself is to is to kind of when I come across those to ensure they are available for everyone, if they so choose, to learn more about. Uh, and so you take, you know, Maurice Dorfman, you mentioned, so Maurice Dorfman. So how did this come about? Very interesting. Again, I, I went into Maurice Dorfman's shop for the first time when I was doing this Clapham High Street project. Uh, and I discovered, a, you know, a man in his 80s by himself in this huge kind of, you know, somewhat, you know, sort of aging old uh haberdashery shop massive building uh and he's living by himself and he was very quirky like sort of you know he'd have sort of you know dance music on and he might dance around the shop if he felt so inclined and i found it intriguing but i also saw a man who was lonely uh and so every time i went down to the that in the house i just pop in sit down have a chat with him listen to some music you know talk about what was on in in the world and news and everything and then he died. Age of eighty-seven, he died. And I felt I thought it was important for the Clapham community to know that he died, because otherwise it might sort of go unnoticed for a while. So I put in the window of his shop some some beautiful portraits I'd created of him, you know, before he died, um, and I just did all sort of notes saying, you know, very sadly. Maurice Dorfman has has passed, uh, and he's been on the high street for sixty years—the longest, you know, surviving independent retailer. Of which thirty years were you know spent by himself in this huge shop, living above the shop, you know. And he and he, he was still open the shop when he was eighty-seven. Every day he'd open the shop at eighty-seven because he just loved it, and uh, it became something of a shrine. This window—I hadn't expected that because, of course, he touched so many lives over decades. And if you were a mum in the 70s, you probably bought dress patterns from him and fabrics and you bought wool and you did crochet. And, you know, he was part of people's life. So that led me to say, you know what, I need to do more than just put some pictures in the window here. You know, let me let me see if I can find out more about him. Because, you know, we, we just had a few, you know, chats. I'd never really explored his history, although I had done three uh, voice recordings on my iPhone when I thought he had some really interesting you know, sort of perspectives I wanted to sort of hold on to. Um, and so that started this voyage discovery. And I, I thought I'll do a little exhibition, you know, it'll be three months' work, talk to 20 people, little exhibition in the shop, and that's it. No, because as I explored his story, I found just this wealth of fascinating history about, you know, how his grandparents had come, you said, from the Ukraine, classic Jewish culture, you know, came to the uh, East End, got involved in the kind of clothing business. Uh, and that's sort of, that was the sort of descent of his side of the family. Then it turned out he was a brilliant yachtsman, you know, motorbiker he'd had, you know, what I'd encountered as a sort of a man living by himself in his eighties. And he had two, three wonderful, you know, loving relationships with partners, one of which I was able to kind of, you know, speak with. And so it just, I, I, he had the most incredible story. And so it actually led to over a year's work, a huge exhibition last year, a book that just kind of celebrated this remarkable man who had so much more, you know, behind his facade than you would ever, ever imagine. And, and I think that's true for many people if, if they, you know, if they're willing to share.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it stood out to me that um, the impact Of the work that you created, and particularly what was displayed in the actual shop window, meant that passers-by started to stop and connect and talk to each other. So you were you were creating uh, a whole new conversation, and really importantly, around community connection. And and actually, one of um, the lovely. Uh, parts of the story I read. Um, I'll I'll quote you. uh, Tucked away in one of Morris's cupboards, I stumbled across some dust-encrusted boxes which contained a collection of early 1960s kodachrome slides of family life. I had them restored especially for the exhibition. I mean, what an absolute gift. But what I really love about that is... You have a real sense of uh, guardianship. It's it, it's a real responsibility as well, isn't it? The guardianship of the content you create, the content you find, uh, the stories you tell. What, what does that responsibility feel like, Jim? Do you even have to be brave in a way to undertake that?
1: Um, I th- So sort of thoughts came to my mind when you asked that. Uh, so firstly does one need courage uh as opposed to bravery i th- yes one's got to have courage one's got to have the confidence to approach strangers because they are strangers when you first meet them and talk about what you're doing and you know explore whether it might be possible to spend some more time with you know with the individual to learn more about their life um and to as part of that take photographs Um, and that is that does require a bit of self-confidence and courage Um, uh, but as I said before as soon as they understand what you're doing I so rarely I so so rarely get get a no Um, uh, then back to the sort of responsibilities I I absolutely feel I need to be objective you know I I want to kind of portray as accurately as I can what I'm seeing my background is a businessman I was a, a strategy director for a multinational company And that's all about, you know, gathering, you know, analyzing, gathering facts, making conclusions, you know, from the evidence you've got in front of you. And so I, I always want to make sure that I'm trying with, with, with whatever final set of images I use to tell a story, whether it be dominoes or a funeral. I want to try and make sure I've got a body of images that objectively, you know, tell the story as opposed to selectively go after, you know, one angle. Um, uh, so there is that responsibility. Of course, ultimately, you know, I, I am kind of quotes the editor, so I, I I get to ultimately, you know, choose what to. Put out there in front of a viewer. Uh, that is that is a responsibility. I do feel that responsibility. I also feel very responsible to make sure that you know the interview transcripts, you know, are objective. But I give the individuals absolutely the right to take anything out. I so when, when I've finished an interview. And it's a painful, it's, it's a worthy process, but gosh, it's painful. And so if I sit down and do a one-hour interview, I know it's going to take me eight hours to transcribe it. I know that. That's just the what it takes. Um, and because obviously you need to turn a conversation into something that, you know, flows on a page, if you like, or on a, on a panel in an exhibition. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll automatically delete things that I know would be an inappropriate thing to say and, and might put that person at some risk. Uh, I I want to be very careful of language right now, you know, when working with this group because of the whole, you know, kind of Black Lives Matter uh, movement. I have to be very careful. So if they if they've said things I know, it's not going to help them to have that said. I will take them out at the first round. I will then go back and say, okay, well, this this is the um, uh, interview transcript. I've gone through it and made sure there's nothing there. I think that's going to put you at personal risk. Uh, but you have a look and if anything you want to edit you know feel free Uh, very rarely get anyone coming back with anything Uh, but you know once in a while you know they will and I'll say absolutely fine I I, I might say to them are you sure because I think it's quite an important point there should we use some different words to describe it but ultimately I'll say no if you don't want that in the text it comes out a normal Evernote was there Um, because I feel I have a responsibility for the people I work with you know not to put them in any personal risk. That that that's a that that would be just a ridiculous thing for me to do. Um so so there is that, you know, process I go through. Um, but I ultimately want to try and you know kind of give people as much of the story and as 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 objective and accurate as I possibly can.
0: Yeah, it's almost like your subjects become co-creators with you, partly through consent, um, but also uh, via their own invitation, which is interesting. And also in terms of talking about language, whether it's transcribing an interview um, or whether it's visual language, um, another photo that stood out to me um, was really... Um, I'm thinking about the language of juxtaposition because it's in the current exhibition, it's a photo of women packing uh, food boxes. Um, Earlier, I was referring to um, the generosity that comes through in this exhibition. Yeah, the generosity of this community. And, uh, you know, even despite uh, losses they've had, but what's interesting is they're packing the food boxes in front of a portrait of the queen. And of course, that's a really interesting juxtaposition because we're talking about the history of imperialism, colonial history, uh, of which has had devastating effects, uh, you know, on populations um, a- a- around the world, um, you know, the effects of partition, but particularly in terms of the story of the Windrush generation. Um it, you know, there was some really, really tough histories. And of course, the scandal in terms of what's led to victimisation, uh, deportations, um, is really harsh. Um, you know, justice is on, is on the table now. But nevertheless, that image is really powerful because you've got that perfect juxtaposition with a portrait of the Queen.
1: Yes, indeed. Very interesting. Um- the the first generation are, are real monarchists you know they, they they you know they they'll say oh we love the queen or they would say we love the queen you know, they sat you know glued to the tv and the coronation um you know that first generation incredibly strong in their kind of belief in the monarchy um and as you say it's more i think it's more in the subsequent generations who are now you know kind of really sort of opening up the whole you know issue of reparations uh, you know, the consequence of the slave trade, um, and it, it's more. I think that, or and it, it's not by any way, you know, ubiquitous. You know, when, when I sort of explore just tentatively this space, it doesn't lead often to big conversations for me, and I don't know quite why. Whether, just, whether just sort of they're holding that in for themselves, I don't know. They're they're, they're very proud of their roots. One thing I've learned about. The Caribbean community they're very proud of their roots they're very proud of their heritage someone said to me um uh Quincy said to me you know being Jamaican is a big identity you know it's a big big identity and he's right um uh and so you know they and I interesting actually, I I didn't sort of I, my my work wasn't sort of really exploring the space of course it's a very kind of you know sort of contemporary topic right now um but I was not actually exploring that particular space I think you have to when you do this sort of work, you've got to be clear what story you want to tell. You have to go in saying, what do I want to tell here? Um, Can I say one thing? I think it's also a fantastic example of brilliant journalism because had it not been for a journalist called Amelia Gentleman of The Guardian, you know, who really kind of, they were the people who, you know, opened this up and brought it to public attention. If it hadn't been for that journalism, this might never have been exposed. And I think it's a great reminder how powerful good journalism can do, can be, yeah, yeah. and the difference it can make. And I think it's a wonderful example of that.
0: Yeah, because even though, um, you know, justice is on the table, there is still so much yet to be resolved. And, and of course, yeah, it's an absolute travesty, because this was a generation who were invited Uh, who contributed significantly, obviously, to rebuilding Britain post-World War II. And yet hostile legislation was introduced by successive governments in order to create a form of um, unexpected uh, entrapment into suddenly being described as an illegal immigrant. So, as you say, thank goodness for the journalists and the campaigners that insist on justice being served. So... um,
1: I think also this interesting. there's interesting. There's also one thing I've 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 noticed is that, the, of course, you know the, the the windrush scandal, you know, has now been sort of you know sort of publicised and sort of known about, and there've been government you know hearings quite widely right over the last five years. I think, and for the victims, it's just absolutely horrendous. I mean, there's no other word to describe it. What I think it has done, though, I think it's also brought a, a heightened level of awareness. Amongst, if you like, the population in general about the incredible contribution that the Windrush generation made. Uh, uh, I, I think it has, you know, I am not saying it anyway. You know, makes it you know, balances out. I am just, I am just noting that I think everyone is now aware of this thing called Windrush and what they brought this country and the incredible contribution mm. they made, and they're yeah. invaluable. Yeah. Country.
0: Yeah. And as you say, that's really critical because that will hopefully engender the enormous respect uh, that is deserved for, for those contributions. Absolutely. And what's lovely about the, the current exhibition um, is Uh, Your choice, um, I I believe it's the final um, exhibition where uh, you end on a family portrait with a new baby who's only two and a half weeks old. And so I wondered if you could um, just talk a little about that particular image and and in terms of a happy, positive statement, perhaps for the future, but also really recognising and respecting legacy
1: absolutely right so this 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 picture is of uh Quincy Rowe uh Jamaican heritage and he's 34 and his partner Natasha who's 33 uh and Natasha uh is English born and so it's a mixed um, uh, heritage couple and they've just had their their first baby son uh called Jackson and when I photographed the three of them together in their flat in Battersea. Jackson was two and a half weeks old, and I thought this is a wonderful story to kind of include in the exhibition because here we've got a mixed heritage couple, and they've they've got the responsibility now of bringing up this 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 young lad, uh, Jackson. And what I was interested to explore was, you know, how are they thinking about, you know, you know, how do they want to bring him up in terms of him having some connection, if they so choose, because I said it's a choice connection with both their, you know, but his Jamaican heritage and roots and his English heritage and roots. And uh, they they are, you know, absolutely determined to to have him grow up, you know, with a full appreciation of both sides of his heritage, if you like, uh, and plans for a lot of time, you know, with Natasha's family, because they're a very close-knit family, and Quincy's family, because they're very close-knit. And one of the things I asked, uh, uh, Quincy was, you know, in a hundred years time, when Jackson passes or somewhere in a hundred years time, do you think he will have this very traditional distinctive event called a nine night? A nine night is, is a funeral tradition, uh, Headlines are for the nine days after someone dies, every evening people come together and celebrate that person's life. And the big event is the ninth night, which ends up being the very big farewell celebration. Uh, And it's very traditional. And so I asked most people, do you think you'll have a nine night? As a way of figuring out whether or not the cult tradition will stay with them on their subsequent generations. And Quinn sees you as, yes, he will. And I asked, so and why do you believe that? He said, well, because... You know, uh, he's he's growing, going to grow up here in South London, surrounded by my family, very tight knit. And all these traditions are a big part of our lives. And my dad will have a nine night and my, you know, my cousins and I will stipulate in my sort of, you know, my will, I will have a nine night. So he'll just grow up with the normality of a thing called a nine night. And so, and because he's in South London, we such a big community, I really believe in 100 years time, he will have a nine night uh you know time will tell whether that's the case who, who knows but 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 i completely understand why he has that strength of conviction uh because for some families you know holding on these traditions and passing them on is definitely a big part of their lives not not everyone to this thing about being a choice but it was just inspiring to hear this young couple you know embarking on parenting and wanting to make sure this beautiful baby jackson you know grows up understanding equally his his heritage from both his mum's side of the family and his dad's side
0: yeah it's a beautiful image and 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 in a way the, the fact that it's a mixed heritage family um It's something um, to take hope in, in terms of simply uh, speaking, love, not hate. Um, It's a very, very uh, powerful, powerful image from from all sorts of points of view. Um, Jim, I'm very conscious we've whipped through our hour, but um, if I can just um, end uh, with some thoughts, actually, on the series question, Cannot Save Us, because everything um, we've been talking about in terms of uh, photography um, and also in that, the example of that uh, photo with, with baby Jackson, um, you know, there's such um, an important role in terms of culture and communication, heritage, identity, understanding. I'm just wondering what your response is to that question, can art save us?
1: So I absolutely believe that what I put in front of people, if they choose to engage with it, you know, will absolutely will do adverse things that you know I think they find valuable. And the visitor books I have are just filled with you know unbelievable comments about how people have been inspired and moved. Because a, I think I am informing people. I'm I'm typically you know I, I I always talk about myself wanting to make the unseen seen. So that means I'm always informing people. I'm informing people about things they're not familiar with. I'm also, I'm also inviting people to engage with the work and ask themselves questions. You know, th- this piece of work, you know, is a, asks universal questions about, look, you know, from our family past, what do we want to hold on to? You know, what do we want to pass on to our children, our grandchildren, why do you want to do that? Why is it important? What do you want to let go of? You know, those are universal questions, whether you are the Caribbean community, whether you're like me, I've got some Welsh blood I want to explore further. My sons, I've got three sons. They don't know that right now. I've not yet told my three sons that I have Welsh blood and therefore they do too. Um, uh, and so I, I, I really believe that, you know, and if you're kind enough to, you know, call what I'm doing art, that's very kind of you. I, I really believe that, you know, what the, the art form I've chosen to pursue you know, can inform, it can make people very, very proud, it can have people think, it can cause emotion. Uh, We so often have tears in the galleries when I'm exhibiting work because it's quite moving, some of the work I put in front of people. Um, And so, you know, good art, whatever it is, whether it's a painting, a piece of sculpture, uh, a ceramic, it has to engage someone. You know, they've, they've got to stop and in one way or another, engage with it. That is what great art is. And it's always tragic when I go into institutions and see people just wandering past masterpieces. But it just says, you know, that painter, for whatever reason, hasn't engaged the individual that happened to walk past that moment. And that's the challenge we have as artists. You know, how do we get someone to stop in their tracks in this busy world, and for whatever reason, that individual engages with what you put in front of them. And it causes them to ponder, reflect, think, it might trigger emotions of joy, sadness, engender curiosity, but that's what you've as an artist you need to do. Because if you don't do that, people will just just walk past, uh, and all that time you spend creating something is is wasted. So, so I really believe that good art can save us. It can trigger emotions that are important to humanity, and I I, I love you know the opportunity and it's a privilege to put you know work in front of people with the hope that I will, in one way or another, engage them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the visibility that you're creating is so significant because if we were to imagine these books, these exhibitions didn't exist, um, how much less we immediately know. Um, You know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, isn't it? What you're doing is making... Uh, so many important stories of humanities and histories visible, whether it's immediately in your local community or the fact that, you know, through digital, through publishing, um, there's a wider and wider
1: audience. That's right. You know, I often get people saying just to me, thank you. Thank you for for creating this, you know, from the community. I'm so grateful you've spent the time doing this because financially it's a complete disaster. Just, just, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not, it's not for any artists, and unless you are right at the top of the you know, of, of the pyramid there is no money unfortunately to be made in most yeah. art forms, sadly mm. and so i don't do it you know there's no financial upside here for me at all i do it because i i want to do it and i love doing it and i'm privileged enough to be able to do it uh, in terms of relationships i've got but i so often get people saying thank you for creating this Really appreciate what you've done here, um, uh, because I'm shining a light on something that others haven't. You know, uh, one of the things I do as a, a photographer, I'm only really interested in telling stories that haven't been told before. I, mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time telling a story that's been told many times before or i want to bring a new angle to it you mentioned the the tom's bench covid so just a different angle on a subject that was being massively photographed by every documentarist you know in the country um and so when i did the first piece of work back around windrush five years ago no one at that time was doing the work i was doing so what i you know exhibited was a unique piece of work and that's why all the media kind of grabbed hold of it it was great this time around here i've said i need to tell different stories so that's why this time i've said i'm going to tell stories about the subsequent generations not the first because i feel i've, I've already told so about the first generation so now i'm basically engaging with the kind of second third fourth and just the fifth generation right now and sharing you know stories about them and making them feel proud And opening up questioning, I I know I've already had interesting conversations with people around. Gosh, you know, I haven't really thought about how much I'm doing about holding on to my heritage. Maybe I should be doing more. You know, I'm not telling the stories. A nice little story, right to finish, because I know we're running out of time here. So, um, you know, storytelling. So someone said to me, OK, Jim, if you go into the home of a Jamaican who's very superstitious, uh, ask to see the back of the bedroom door because you'll probably find on the back of the bedroom door a tape measure. And I said, what's all that about? And he said, well, my dad told me the story. Uh, Basically, if you're superstitious, to keep the evil spirits away, you know, of your departed, your loved one, you know, you put a tape measure on the back because the evil spirit knows that undertakers use a tape measure to measure up the size of coffin required. And so they don't come back because they're worried you'll sort of be thinking about measuring up, you know, that person's coffin. That an interesting story. I said, okay. Uh, so I then asked, I started to ask the question to these elders, have you got a tape measure in the back of your door? And of course, many of them knew the story. And I found this wonderful lady saying, yeah, uh, actually, I haven't got it on the door. I put it on the bed every day. And when I go to sleep at night, I put it on the side of the bed where my husband used to sleep. I said, that's very interesting. I said, who told you that story? She said, my grandmother back in Jamaica. And I said, okay, that's very interesting. Uh, have you told your children or your grandchildren this story? And she said, no, I haven't. And I didn't say anything more because I just wasn't in a position to do that. wasn't right for me to. But of course, what we're going through my mind here is if she doesn't tell her family, that story, that story will be lost. And, you know, it's a choice again, you know, one makes about what stories you want to pass on. Uh, But I thought it was a very interesting little, little, tiny little example here of something that she'd been passed down, uh, but for whatever reason, she had decided not to share it with her funny she, she may do now because you know we had this conversation and we did talk about it a little bit more uh and uh she might do who knows it's, it's her choice and I, I it's entirely her choice and again I, i'm not in any way judging people because everyone makes their own choices and i respect those who decide to do something and something different that's entirely their choice uh but i just thought just that was interesting
0: Yeah, very, very interesting. And actually, briefly, um, at the beginning of this interview, we were talking about your initial or your first entry point, if you like, into the Domino's Clubs. Because what's also lovely... Uh, in your exhibition is you've also gone back to those clubs with an emphasis on the intergenerational nature of those clubs. So now there's a real emphasis on young people coming in to play with elders. And that's really joyous because I think... That's a real installment, isn't it, of, of the values in Caribbean culture around home, family, and belonging and passing down knowledge, reflecting what you were just saying, actually. Um, it's reinstalling the importance of passing down stories, knowledge, and sharing.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Um, uh, and the thing about one thing about the Caribbean, it's very close knit, the family values. And the close-knit nature and the kind of love and kindness uh is is inspiring, it really is. And they love telling stories. They love telling stories. Uh, and they also love it when someone like me comes on and says, share your stories. They love that. They love the opportunity just you know, to tell someone more about you know the stories that they were told when they were kids and they think are important. Uh and it, it makes it such fun, it really does. The dominoes are interesting, as you said, because no, because it's mainly played by, you know, elder men, you know, dominoes clubs are kind of dying out in this country. Um, and so this, this injection of new life, you know, with this new all women's team. Anyone in the country, diamonds—they call the diamonds—who are aged between, they're most aged between thirty and sixties, a couple in their twenties. It just brings a new energy and life into you know what's been traditionally a men's game played by elders. And then this outreach program, you know, taking these you know, tables into, into the libraries again, it's just bringing new new generations and and, and a new appreciation, if you like, of the dominoes story and the dominoes culture that is such a big part of Caribbean culture.
0: Yeah, it it's it's a it's a really lovely um exhibition, the the amount of storytelling that's being told and the amount of heritage that's being respected and also the really the the justice if you like that's being served in terms of making the effort to respect these stories and respect That heritage. Uh, So inevitably, along with all of the major press, I applaud you on your work. Um, I thank you very much again for your time, because I know you are seriously busy with exhibitions. It's it's very generous of you. Um, And obviously, I thank you to the Windrush community, not only for what they have contributed to this country, but for as ever, being as generous and as courageous to open their hearts and minds to you and, and to take part. Um, your information will be signposted on your episode page so people can discover more of your work. And thank you very much again, Jim. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.
1: No, well, thank you. I mean, it's been an immense privilege for me to spend time with this community. It's community I, I Hugely respect, I hugely admire, have a huge affection for, uh, and I I hope that comes through in the work. Uh, I'm gonna make one tiny little plug, if you'll allow me, which is is the book can also be bought as a downloadable, just for 10 pounds, the entire book, all the interviews, as a PDF. So if you would like to, if you can't get to the exhibition in Clapham, if you're living a long way away, you can either buy a printed book of uh, 25 pounds, which got all the interviews, all the transcripts in it, all the photos, uh, but you can also buy it as a 10 pound, environmentally friendly, uh, downloadable PDF. So I'm gonna make that short plug and you can access it through my website.
0: Absolutely, no, a very, very welcome plug. Um, it's really important. It's really important uh, this work is seen. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, and it's, it's been an absolute pleasure.